And let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. Those of you that are visiting with us this morning, we are going through the New Testament book by book. Right now we're in between books. We're getting ready to start 2 Peter. But to celebrate Christmas, I wanted to look at another passage. Isaiah chapter 8. It's a little bit to the right of Psalms, Proverbs, and it's a very long book, a very good book. If anyone needs a Bible, you can raise your hand here. We have someone passing them out. Isaiah chapter 8, let's begin in verse 19. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you, according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning the fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to be able to celebrate the birth of Jesus together as a family. We thank you, Lord, for your great provision in sending him to die on our place. We pray, Lord, that you would use these verses for your purposes as we think about him, we think about his birth and his death and why he came and and how you want to use all of that in our lives to bless others. So we pray that your spirit would teach us, that we would hear everything you want us to say, and be willing to obey what you say. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today we formally celebrate Christmas as a church family, and as I said earlier, we really celebrate his birth every day. We celebrate his death every day. We celebrate his resurrection every day. And when we think about Christmas, 
you know, we think of a lot of things, especially in our culture. There's um, great commercialism and, and people are going a million different directions thinking about what Christmas could be about, what it's not about, and get caught up in a bunch of different things. You're thinking about our gifts. You know, I was, I was thinking this week, you know, what was my favorite gift growing up? If I could just pick one gift, what would it have been? And I was thinking of all the different options. I was thinking, was it the sit and spin? That was pretty good. You know, you, I should have called that like the sick and vomit. I mean, the spin and vomit or something, because, you know, you sit and you just go around and around until you just, you get sick. And, um, you know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about maybe the Stretch Armstrong. I've mentioned that a few times, you know, where his arms stretch super far, you know, and you're tying it to doorknobs and, you, you know, you're doing all kinds of unintended things that you shouldn't do. Um, I liked that gift. Um, I was thinking about Shrinky Dinks, honestly. I was thinking, remember Shrinky Dinks? You'd put them in the, the oven and they'd, they'd kind of expand and be, you're thinking I'm pretty weird if you don't know what that is, but um, they were pretty enjoyable. Uh, there was this slime that I got that it's like it had little worms in it and you pretend like you know a little you just rub it in your hand you know I mean I really got into these toys but I but I really settled on the bionic man I mean really how can you improve on the bionic man I wanted that thing so badly and I got it and you could look in the back of his head how many guys had a bionic man here anyone here don't be ashamed one just one man deprived uh, you look through the back of his head and you can see out his eye because he had that little, you know, the supervision, the boop, 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 you know, you could see close up and then he could roll up his sleeve and you could see his bionics and you could take out his little bionics and stuff and he could lift an engine, a little toy engine there he could lift and stuff and a lot of fun things. Where do I go from there? I don't know. But I was just thinking, you know, you know, Christmas is just incredible. People think all these different things about Christmas and gifts and the commercialism and so forth. But really, when you look at the real reason for the season, as we like to say, the real reason is that Jesus came. He came. He interrupted mankind. We weren't looking for him. We didn't want him. We weren't thinking that we needed him. He interrupted time and, and, and he came. And he, and he demonstrated our need by the fact of what he did for us. And really, as, as we know, he came to die. That's why Jesus came. He came to die. And he came in a very uh, humble way. If we were writing the New Testament, we would never have thought about, if we were making it up, you know, that the, the Savior is going to be born in, in a, you know, a cave, basically, where they would keep animals. And he would be, you know, laying there in, in a feeding trough. You know, we would think, oh, well, he's the king of the universe. He's going to come into a majestic home and, and be in a, a castle or, or, you know, live, you know, uh, in, a, in a very extravagant way. He didn't. He, he came in a way to where no matter who you are in this life, you can look at his life and how he came and how he lived, and you could say, I can identify with him. He, he's someone that I can identify with. And so one of the things that it's easy to forget, though, is that, Everything about how he came and the timing and the circumstances around his coming were all prophesied about. You know, hundreds of prophecies given in the Old Testament. That's one of the things that's very helpful in having the Lord solidify our faith and helping us know just how solid the solid ground upon which our faith has been built is learning those prophecies. I mean, you go back even to Genesis chapter 3. I think that's the first prophecy uh, related to the Messiah where you had the first parents, Adam and Eve, and they sinned. And, and right after the fact that they were, got caught sinning, then a promise was made that 
the seed of the woman, and ultimately we know that that was Mary, the seed of Mary, would, would crush Satan. And, and the Lord specifically uh, said that the Messiah will bruise Satan's head and Satan will bruise the Messiah's heel. So that was the first time. There was sin, but God had a solution. Oh, and obviously, as we look at other parts of Scripture, we see that Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. I mean, God knew from eternity past that man would fall, and he had a solution for it. But we see all through the Old Testament, we see the lineages in, in Genesis. You know, you wonder why? Why does it have all these, you know, he begot this person, and they begot this person, and there's so many of those lineages. But one of the things that you learn as you study those is that they really continue only related to the lineage of the Lord Jesus. The ones that aren't related to his line kind of fizzle out, and we, they're not recorded. But the ones related to the Lord Jesus are intact for us to see. And ultimately, we see in Matthew and in Luke uh, different lineages that, from different perspectives, but ultimately traces lineage all the way back to, to Adam. And so we see that. But we also see God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and specifically to Abraham, that he would multiply his descendants and that he would uh, make his descendants more numerable than the sands in the seashore, the stars in the sky. I mean, these promises all the way through. So what God was doing is he was, he was painting a portrait in the Old Testament, a very specific, vivid portrait, so that when he came in the fullness of time, as Galatians tells us, he, we would recognize him and we wouldn't miss him. Because basically with all the qualifications that we see the Lord Jesus fulfill related to the Messiah, if he doesn't meet those, then nobody does. There is no Messiah if Jesus didn't meet all those uh, qualifications that were prophesied about. So we can go on and on. Moses promised that there would be a prophet that would come like him, that would come later. Uh, we, you know, we see the, the prophecies related to David's descendant that would sit on his throne forever and ever. And you know, we see all these different ways that God expressed these amazing uh, prophecies, but one of the main places that we see very substantial prophecies and a picture of the Messiah is in the book of Isaiah. This prophet named Isaiah. It's a very long record of Isaiah's prophecies, one of the longest books in uh, the Old Testament. And that's what I want to look at a little bit today as we celebrate Jesus's birth. Isaiah prophesied mainly to the southern kingdom of Judah. And at that time in his history, their main adversary was Assyria. Now, Assyria would come and conquer the northern kingdoms in 722 BC. And then about 120 to 135 years later, uh, the Babylonians would come and conquer the southern kingdom. But Isaiah was tasked, and we can see his commission in Isaiah chapter 6. And we see, you know, who will, who will go for us, the, the Lord said, and he will send, send me. You know, and so God commissioned him, even though he had a, didn't have a great assessment of his proficiency or his worthiness to be used, as, as all of us could, could agree with, related to ourselves. You know, and, but God said, this, you know, I'm calling you. You're the one that's going. And so Isaiah was commissioned. So at that time, there was, you know, we see all through the Old Testament, we see the, the children of Israel They'll, they'll follow the Lord, they'll serve the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then they'll get carried away into sin, and they'll start serving idols, false idols, and they'll be engaged in all kinds of wickedness that's associated with each individual idol. 
and they'll turn from the Lord, God will, will, will allow an adversary to be raised up, and that adversary will come and, and you know, come against them. They would cry out to, to God and ask for mercy, and they'd repent and so forth. God would deliver them, and they would do well for a while, and then the whole process would start over again. It sounds familiar. Where have I seen that before? Oh, yeah, it's, a, it's our lives. That's kind of our walk. You know, we do well for a while. We serve God. We do, you know, and then we fall prey to temptation. And then we sin. And then sometimes if we don't repent right away, we start like this in this downward spiral. And then after a while, we, we get sick of it. We repent. We ask forgiveness. God forgives us. He, and he helps us get back to where we were. As it's been said, 10,000 steps away, one step back with the Lord. Now, there may be repercussions to our decisions and so forth, but the fact is he takes us right back every single time, just like in the Old Testament. So there's nothing new under the sun, you know, that how we can get all critical of them and say, oh, they're so carnal and, you know, everything, but we live the same way. We forget that the standard is perfection. It's still perfection. Even after we get saved, it's still perfection. One wrong motive, one, you know, dwelling on one sinful thing and having a sinful, you know, meditation on something or just anything the standard is still perfection we fall short of that every day it's a good reminder for us if we need to be confessing sin every if we're sinning every day we need to be confessing uh, on a daily basis and and so so we see these these uh how god used you know isaiah in prophesying to the southern kingdom even though the northern kingdom had aligned with syria at this point and they were trying, you know, they were against the northern kingdom in Syria were posturing against the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Isaiah is prophesying, you know, to the to the southern kingdom of Judah there and helping them be, you know, kind of prepared for what was coming. And that's how chapter eight kind of is laid out, uh, because because verses 11 through 22 really speaks of Isaiah prophesying to how Judah can prepare for this Assyrian invasion. So verses 11 through 15, he talks about how to prepare by fearing God, not Assyria. Don't look at Assyria supremely. Look at God. And, and then we see in verses 16 and 18 through 18 that we prepare by waiting on the Lord. And then verses 19 through 22, we're told that they were told how to prepare by seeking his, the light of his word and not going to darkness. So where I want to start at is in verse 19, where he, he starts and he's going to continue speaking about Israel's condition at the time, at this time. But it's also going to start getting into, as we're going to see, it's going to start getting into the condition of Israel at the time that the Messiah would come. And, and how Israel was at that time, and of course this time, has a lot to do with, with our society. And how this is, our society is, and how the, this society needs the Messiah as well. So he begins in verse 19 and says, and when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? So verse 19 is a warning, and it's, and it's against seeking words and wisdom from mediums and, and, and these people that were engaged in the occult. You know, what they would do is they'd go sometimes some of these people that they'd go to for, for uh, information related to the future is that they would come to these guys and they would have these bones of animals and they'd put them in a gourd and they would mix them up and then they would put them out on the ground and they would see what shape they landed in and then they would try to interpret the future. It was really weird. You thought the Psychic Friends Network was strange. 
You know, these guys, by the way, they went bankrupt. Did you know that? The Psychic Friends Network? Yeah, they didn't see it coming. But, um, you know, they, they're out of business now. So uh, I couldn't resist on that one. But Judah was, look, basically the bottom line is Judah was looking for wisdom and for knowledge in the, all the wrong places, much like we see today. People are, and that's why these, the darkness that they were in then and in the time of when the Lord Jesus came on the scene and today, it, nothing's changed. There's darkness. And people seek wisdom from all these other places. And, you know, they'll, they'll commune with aliens and not think that's weird, but we quote a Bible verse and we're extreme. You know, it just makes no sense. It's like you're into all this crazy stuff. And, and, and you're normal, but, but we're the ones that are looking at Scripture that's been time-tested, and we're the, we're the weirdos. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. But all through God's history, man has been tempted to try to seek information apart from going to God, to find information some other way. You know, the word occult means hidden. So it's trying to find hidden information that's in a way that's, that's apart from how God is revealed Truth, And then you notice in verse 20, he tells us where we should look. He says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And I want to call your attention to the word light there. Word of God is, is light. And God represents light. In him there is no darkness at all. And all through this passage, and even one that we're going to look at that's, that's, that's in the New Testament that's quoting from this passage, has a, you'll, we're going to see a reoccurring themes of light and darkness, and that the repercussions of darkness are, are really bad, and they're really hurtful. And, and then, but the benefits of light and everything that God represents is all good and all good for blessing, and he loves to do it. So darkness and light was very much connected to the Messiah and his first coming. And we're going to see that. Now, this wasn't the only time God would rebuke them for seeking out hidden information, you know, and engaging in occult practices. In Isaiah 47, verse 13, he said this, You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, yeah, it was was going on back then, astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. So later he's going to tell them, all these people that you're seeking that have led you into destruction by lying to you, then what, let them help you because they're, they're the ones that, that said they're going to be safe. And, and there were prophets in that time that were saying, you're safe, you're safe, you're safe. And God said, woe to those false prophets that say peace and safety when there is no peace and safety. So the word of God wasn't good enough for them, much like today. The word of God isn't sufficient. We need other things. We need other things in life to make our lives successful. God knows that his word is exactly what we need to have our lives guided in the way that it should go. Maybe you're here today, you don't know the Lord. And you're wondering, which way should I go in life? What, how should I make decisions about this or that? We need to put the most important things first. You ever heard the saying, first things first? Put the first things first. You get right with God and you come His way. Then you submit to His revelation, His Word. He knows how we should live our lives. He knows what, would, what our lives are supposed to be about. He knows what the purpose in life is supposed to be, which is to know Him, to have a personal relationship with Him. 
And he hasn't let, let it be up to us to decide how to approach him. He's, he's given us a very narrow, yes, I said the word narrow, narrow way to come to him. Truth is narrow. Every belief system claims to be the truth. They all contradict each other. So either one's right or they're all false. Those are your options. They all can't be true equally. So he says, you have to come my way. And God's word is the kind of the, what's been referred to as the, the, the roadmap for life or the, the owner's manual for life. He added to that in Isaiah 55.8, where he said this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are, are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now, we've quoted these verses before. We talk about these verses. What's the context? Idolatry, apostasy, turning from the Lord, going to other things instead of going to him. And he says, my word is sufficient to accomplish every purpose that it's been sent to accomplish. All these other things that you're going to, all these other things you're trying to serve are not going to accomplish my purposes for you. And you are not going to realize my plan for your life. Now the prophecies of of the doom which will come upon those that have rejected God's counsel are in verse 21 and 22. He says, They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen. When they are hungry, that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they shall look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Notice the last word of verse 22, darkness. We're going to see again light and darkness being brought into the context of the giving of the Messiah or the providing of the Messiah to this world. And being without God's counsel and word is complete darkness. But then he says that that they will be driven into darkness. They're already in darkness in verse 22. But it says they will be driven further into darkness. So you have people that are living in the way that that they think that they should live. And they're in darkness. And it just seems to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And so this strong theme of being trapped in darkness, But he continues it in chapter 9. He says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he highly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death Upon them, a light has shined. So the light is going to come from a place. And he gives the place there in verse 1. He says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now those were two of Jacob's sons. Jacob had 12 sons. And those sons, the clan that they represented when they got to Israel by Joshua, they were each given an inheritance in the land. 
And Naphtali would get, his clan got an inheritance, and so did Zebulun. And the geographical location was in northeast Israel, up in the Galilee. And that's why he's talking about it there. And he says, notice at the end of verse 1, Galilee of the Gentiles. You know, back then in Jesus' time, and even today, there's great prejudice against those that live in the north of Israel by those that live in the, around Jerusalem. There's a pride. They see northern Israel as like the, you know, the, I don't know how to, how to say it without <laughs> possibly offending someone, which I don't want to do, but they just look down at those people as, as not refined and, and you know, not um, sophisticated. And you remember Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he already had that type of uh, posture towards, towards um, you know, the Galilee up there. And so that's the place that when the Assyrians finally came and invaded the northern kingdom, that's where they came first. They hit Syria, which is north of Israel, and then they came in the north of Galilee in those two areas, the areas of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so it's, it's all pointing to the area of uh, where the Lord Jesus was going to be raised. Not where he'd be born, but where he'd be raised. And then notice in verse 2 he says that the people who walked in darkness, there's our word again, have seen a great light. Now hold your place here and turn over to Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to see Matthew, by the Spirit, quote Isaiah, the passage that we're in, giving evidence that this one that was born and this one that came and was starting his ministry was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew chapter 4. I want to start reading in verse 12. Matthew writes by the Spirit, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now you can turn back to Isaiah chapter 8. So let's piece all this together. There's a reason why Matthew is quoting this. He's, He's communicating by quoting Isaiah, he's led by the Spirit to do it, that there was a great darkness in the land. That when Jesus came, he was a light that illuminated that darkness. So, he, But he's quoting from a time where it was great darkness, right? And one of the things I love about so many prophecies related to the Lord Jesus or about deliverance, you know, when God gives prophecies related to deliverance, how he's going to deliver, it's usually in the context of a very horrible situation, a very depressing, discouraging situation. And he always gives us hope when we need it. Even people that are in rebellion to him in the Old Testament and they're, they're serving false gods. He gives this prophecy and he gives them hope that God isn't finished with them forever. You know, we think that when we fail, don't we? Oh, God's through with me. It's, it's over. I've burned up too many chances, you know. I've done my 70 times 7, 490 uh, times where I've asked for forgiveness and there's no hope for me. And God says, there is hope for you. You're never going to extend my or overextend my grace. It's not that I didn't know that you were going to fail. I died for those sins already. 
That's weird to think, isn't it? That he's died for sins we haven't even committed yet. Nothing takes him by surprise. He knows everything that we're going to do. He doesn't approve of it, of course, but he knows the sin that we're going to commit. And he comes in, and this is his heart. His heart is to come in and say, in the middle of rebellion, in the middle of great hardship and discouragement, I'm going to send a prophet, and he's going to prophesy and give you hope and perspective that you're not put on the shelf forever. I still have a plan for you, and I still will bless you. I still just come back to me. And he's imploring them to come back to him. And now in this context, he's saying there's darkness in, in, in uh, the Gentile, I mean, in, uh, in, in um, Galilee of the Gentiles. And a great light has come. A great light has come and has turned on or illuminated all of the darkness for everybody to see what they don't want to see in themselves. I mean, Jesus spoke of it, didn't he? He said, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they don't want to come into the light lest their deeds be exposed. So just like if you're living in a home and you have some roaches, you know, and you turn on the kitchen light in the middle of the night, they take off. They don't, they don't want to be exposed. And he says, all of our hearts are that way. All of us don't want to come into the light. All of us don't want to be around things that are going to show us that we're guilty. But we have to be willing to accept the bad news about ourselves before we can accept the good news. The good news that Jesus died in our place and took the wrath that we deserved on the cross. And so he says, I'm telling you the truth. Yes, you're darkness, but I want to make you light. And that's what he does. And he's so good at doing it. So when we see Jesus come on the scene, there are so many things that Jesus did and said that represent light. I mean, think about it. Jesus did say specifically, I am the light of the world. He said that. He just came right out and said it. He is the light of the world. But you think about how he illuminated with his speech. He illuminated with good works. But just the things that he said. Remember the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery? The Pharisees brought her in. And they thought, hey, we got her. And now he's going to have to, if he's going to obey the law of Moses, he has to act a certain way. And, and Jesus ignored them, basically. And he started just writing on the dirt. And people try to guess what he wrote, you know, but maybe he was writing their sins. I don't know. what He, he wrote something on the ground that was convicting. <laughs> because it said they left. The oldest first to the youngest left. And then he's alone with this woman. And he asks her, he says, woman, where are your accuser of, where are the accuser of yours? And, she, and he says, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He did say go and sin no more. He's not winking at sin. But, he, but he, he's concerned about the heart. See, that was light being communicated. The light of that, I'm, we're not living by the letter of the law. We're, we're, we're going by the heart of the law. And my heart towards mankind. The law was given not so we can get as many people, you know, killed by big boulders, you know, be stoned as possible. I gave the law so you can see that you're guilty, so you would need a savior. Now I'm here. Now I want you to receive me. That's the purpose of the law. That's light. And then his works. I mean, how many times did he come and there were lepers and he cleansed them? He didn't just say be cleansed. He touched many of them, which was against the law to do, the law of Moses. But as he touched them, they were clean. He wasn't touching anything unclean. At the very moment he touched them, they were clean. And so he did, he acted in a way that was, was illuminating to people. His, his words, his deeds, everything he did, how he spoke. I love hearing the account of the soldiers that were sent to go arrest him. And they didn't arrest him. And they were called on the carpet and they said, what, what happened? You know, 
that no one ever spoke like this man. There's light that comes forth from him, light in his words, light in his deeds. Such a beautiful, beautiful picture of his, of his heart. Now back to Isaiah. In verse 3 of chapter 9, it says, You have multiplied the, the nation and increased its joy. Notice the word joy. They re- rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Isn't it a picture of, of celebration and what he provided as being that light? That we could rejoice that we don't have to live the same way that we always have lived. I am so thankful I don't have to live the way that I always lived. Wouldn't it be horrible if we got heaven, we, got, we, you know, we knew that we had heaven, but yet we had to, we, we had to live the same disgusting, gross, you know, worthless life that we lived before. That would be horrible. But he comes in and he makes us into a new creation and it gives us joy. Because joy is based in who he is and what he's done for us. And my circumstances can't change that. Like happiness changes based on my circumstances. Joy doesn't change because it's based on, for the Christian anyway, it's based on what he's done for us. And then he says in verse 4, For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. What did Jesus say in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, a yoke is what you would connect an animal to another animal or an animal to a piece of equipment. You know, it's something, it's an attachment. He's saying, it's, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I want to give rest for your souls. That's something that the law of Moses could never provide, is rest for the soul. All it did was, it, was show us how guilty we were and how much we needed a Savior. So he says, I have done all these things, and every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And then he gets very specific about this coming light in verses 6 and 7. And this is what mainly people quote related to Christmas and so forth. But he, we're going to look at these, this in depth a little bit. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now I want you just to remind us here. This was written 740 years before the birth of Christ. There's no way that you could make this up or, or think ahead and know the future and be able to write this kind of, this kind of vivid description of the Savior. <clears throat> now he begins with saying, a child is born. Some have said that's man's perspective. I mean, he was a child from God's perspective, of course, but from man's perspective, you could look at a child and think he's only a, that's only a child there. That's only a child. <laughs> but then he adds to it, a son is given, a capital S son. The son is given. And that's God's perspective and how God has provided uh, for our every single need. But notice there's two times that the word unto appears. For unto us a child is born. For unto us, and then notice, a son is given. And that's why we give gifts and exchange gifts. Celebrate that he was given to us. The greatest gift that we could ever receive was given to us. And that gift in Jesus 
when his death upon the cross, his, his work upon the cross and his, the sacrificial death that he paid for us makes it possible for us to receive the free gift of eternal life. Maybe you're here today, you didn't know eternal life was free. It's free. People say, oh, there's nothing free in this life. Yes, there is. Salvation, it's free. It's a, it's a gift. We can't earn it. You could never be good enough to undo all the sin that you've committed. God made sure that you could receive it as a gift because he knew that that's the only way that we could receive it as a gift. And then he says something interesting. He says the government will be upon his shoulders. Some possibilities of what that could mean. I mean, he is sovereign. He's a sovereign ruler. And sometimes we, people only quote that he's going to be you know, running or being sovereign over the government in his second coming, which is for sure true. He's going to set up his kingdom here in, in, on this world. He's in, there's going to be a thousand-year millennial reign that, happened there, that happens here. But at his first coming, he wasn't at, he wasn't, how do we, how many of us remember that, that Pontius Pilate was more on trial than the Lord Jesus was? He was sovereign over that situation. He said he could call angels down from heaven, legions of them. He could have delivered himself from that, but he didn't. He he was in control even in the first uh, coming. But the government, his rule and his reign Will, will be on his shoulder. He'll take that burden. And he'll be able to carry it well. I'm so looking forward to having a government that's righteous and does the right thing, that's not corrupt. I'm so tired of corrupt governments. And the, as we get closer and closer to the end, it appears that it, it just not really appears. It's always appeared. But, I mean, it, it just becomes more and more real how man can't rule himself. We can't. There's no such thing as legitimate self-rule. We can't do it. We're corrupt because we're sinful and we want that power. We want that money in terms of our our elected officials and they get corrupt. I don't care what party you're talking about. It's sinful man that's in that situation and sinful man's always going to take care of himself, mostly uh, above taking care of other people. So I can't wait for that government to be revealed where he rules and reigns righteously. And read Psalm 2. You'll see how, how well that works out. It works out really well. And it says, and his name will be called Wonderful. I want to stop there. First of all, we need to remind ourselves what name means. It's not just something you're called. Name means your character, who you are, your essence, and and so forth. And there are hundreds of names or designations for the Lord Jesus. I mean, just in the last couple chapters in Isaiah, he said his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he's already just said that in the book of Isaiah. But there are so many more names of Christ, and it speaks of his character. It speaks of his authority. It was very typical for, for kings to have throne names where they would have official titles. You know, the pharaohs of Egypt usually had five names that designated something about their reign or what they were qualified for or what they intended to do in their monarchy. And it was the same with Isaiah writing about the Lord Jesus. It's clear he's saying this man is, this child, his son that's given, is a king. And here are his given names. So he says, wonderful, which speaks of his character, his miracles, his, his power, speaks of how beautiful he is, how wonderful his character is. And then he says, counselor, which means someone that gives advice or miraculous counsel or miraculous wisdom. As we looked at some of those accounts in the Gospels. How his wisdom, I mean, no one ever talked like this man. He spoke as one with authority. He would say, my father, 
They would never say that. The scribes and the Pharisees would never say, my father. They would always have some formal thing for God. He's, and obviously he had a unique relationship as God's one and only son. But he taught us to say, our father, who art in heaven as well. So he, that, it means someone that gives solid counsel. And also he says, mighty God. And it's El Gabor in, in Hebrew. El means God. Gabor means champion or hero or fighter. One who wins. It means someone that has tremendous power. And, and, he, and he does. And this is interesting. Now remember, these are writing, you know, this, these are Jews. We're talking about the, the only one God here. It's interesting when you ask an Orthodox Jew, what is Isaiah, when Isaiah 9, 6, when it says a child is born and, and one of the things will be called is mighty God, what does that mean? And sometimes they'll say, well, it just means, you know, a, a ruler and so forth. But in the old ancient rabbi tradition that were before the Lord Jesus came, that was messianic. And they believed that that would be, you know, Jehovah God. And, and, and you know, we have the angel of the Lord that they would be tempted to, they would bow down to, to worship and, and the angel of the Lord would accept that worship. You know, we're talking about Christ coming in physical form in the Old Testament. And that's, that's good for us to see here, that he's a mighty God. He's powerful. And then he adds everlasting Father. And that's caused some confusion, especially with those that like to say that there's no such thing as the Trinity, but they're one person in the Godhead who wears different masks. And that's, that's heresy. He, there, there is one God. And he reveals himself in three persons. And this is not talking about God the Father here. This is talking about someone that's sovereign over time. It's really literally father of eternity. Everlasting father means father of eternity. And Jesus, obviously being God, is, is Lord over time. In John chapter 1, we're told, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before time began, he already existed. He didn't start in that little manger you know, the world likes to talk about the beginning of Jesus. Well, the birth of Jesus and the beginning of Jesus are two different things. Jesus is, is God in human flesh. He existed from eternity past. He has no beginning. But he came and took an additional human nature, sinless additional nature. And so now we have two natures in the one person of the Lord Jesus. And then he ends with Prince of Peace. And we think of our word shalom in, in Hebrew, you know, it means peace over all of you, your body, soul, and spirit, every part of you. And, and sometimes people say, well, we can't have peace in this world until we have the Prince of Peace overseeing things. And that's true in many ways. But he gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding because of our relationship with him that the world can't even dream of having. And it's good for us to remember just how, how thankful we are for the peace that he's given us. So we can go through incredible hardship and difficulty and trials and still have God's peace in the middle of it. And then he ends in verse 7. He says, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward for even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. So how was God going to do that? Well, his zeal, his power, his, his plan would be fulfilled. He would make it happen, and it's going to continue all the way. When he comes back at the, at the great tribulation, when he sets his foot down on the Mount of Olives and it splits all the way to the Dead Sea, 
and he comes and enters through that eastern gate there, that rule starts, and that thousand years is going to go. Where he's he's going to stay uh, all into that whole time till the new heaven is made after the great white throne judgment. So there, there will be no end to his rule here on earth. Now, there's another aspect to all this I want to mention as I, as I begin my descent. I'm not closing, not landing the plane, but I'm beginning a little bit. Um, you don't have hope. I know that. You don't have any hope. You're hopeless there. But there's, a, there's another aspect of all this related to how we should live our lives. Because, I mean, we celebrate this. We, we want all this to, to, you know, to have its full place in our hearts and so forth. But when we look at the revelation of Jesus in this world, we have to think about how, this, how God has set it up for this world to experience him. And I, and I want to read a scripture from Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Where Jesus said this, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, God has called each and every one of us that know him to make this child, so to speak, this child that grew up and died for the sins of mankind, to make this child known. That's our calling as, as believers. It's, it's about the great commission that all of us are a part of. And so one of the ways to do that is to talk about who he is, all these things that we've been talking about. And what's interesting is that these five titles or designations that he, that he lists here, if you look at, and it's true for all the designations of Christ and his names and so forth, when you look at the opposite of what those things are, it really points to us. When you look at what he is, let's, let's take an example of, you know, a counselor. We need counsel. The fact that he's a counselor shows us that we, I mean, because he's, he's set us things up for us to be able to receive who he is and receive the benefits of who he is. So we, if you look at what he is, he is, he's a counselor. It means that we need counsel. And this world needs counsel. People are going, not knowing how to make decisions in life. You know? Or you look at how he's, a, how he's a mighty God. Well, obviously it shows that we're not God. And we need his power. We need his power in our lives. He's, God reveals him as the mighty God because he knows that we need to know that he's mighty. Because we recognize that we're powerless in this life to have the things accomplished in us that need to be accomplished. We're powerless. But he's a mighty, powerful God. So that means that as we share with people, we're, see, people are very aware of what their, their, their certain needs are in their lives. They're not always aware of their greatest need, and that is forgiveness. But they are aware of other things in their lives that they have need of. And if we recognize that those things that they have need of, God will meet those needs. He'll take the first need, you know, forgiveness first, of course. But then after that, there's other needs that they have that God is so you know, happy to meet those needs. And so we can use those as opportunities to be able to start conversations with people and sharing how Jesus is. So we think of Father of Eternity. You know, he's, he's uh, the one that oversees time. He's the one that oversees eternity. And, and people are very concerned about how they're running out of time in life. You know, I'm running out of time. I, I want this. I have all these expectations about my life. I don't have time to, to get this done or accomplished. And, and you start talking to them about time and what's it mean to have time and how much time do you have left? You ever ask someone, what are you going to do at, at this point in your life? Well, I'm going to do this. And then what? 
well, I'll probably do this. And then what? And they'll probably do that. And you keep going until they get to the end of their life. And well, then I die. Well, then what? What are you going to do? Oh, yeah, you need to think about that. Your time is running out. And God is sovereign over time. He's sovereign over eternity. And he knows that you need to know where you're going in, in life and beyond. And so he comes and says, that's who I am. He's wonderful. He's, he's a counselor. He's mighty God. He's father of eternity. Prince of peace. People know so often that they need peace. They don't know how to get it. But so many people know, I just need peace in my life. So you can be out at Target, hopefully not using your debit card. <laughs> you know, because uh, they just had that security breach. But you're at Target and you're, you know, you're talking with someone and they talk about how they don't have any peace in life. They're aware of their, that need. Now, that's not their greatest need. Their greatest need is forgiveness. But you start talking about Jesus and you start talking about their greatest need. And before you know it, they realize, yeah, you know, I knew I needed peace. But now that you're saying, talking these things to me I, or explaining these things, I realize I really do need forgiveness. That's, that really is my greatest need. And so for us as believers celebrating this, this holiday, and we've been talking for weeks about being prayerful about who we can talk to during the holidays that we might be exposed to, that we might not ordinarily be exposed to because of the circumstances in the holiday, to be prayerful about the gospel. All we need to do is talk about who God is. It's attractive. He's attractive. We start talking about how amazing he is. We start talking about all that who he is all those things meet every need in life, even the ones that in God's eyes are lower down the list, but in their eyes are at the, you know, the forefront of the list. And, but then they see, my greatest need is forgiveness. Jesus came to die. His, his name means Jehovah is salvation. He said his name will be called Jesus, where he will save his people from their sins. That's our greatest need. But there are all kinds of other needs that people think they have that can be used as a springboard or an opportunity to be able to preach the gospel and deal with people's greatest need. And so as we think about Christmas and how he's given us that great gift in the Lord Jesus, it's important for us to remember his heart. His heart is for the lost. He, he, he's willing that none should perish but all come to repentance. He is seeking people out. He's pursuing people. Think about Zacchaeus. Think about blind Bartimaeus. He, he was on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, and he's going after these people. He said, related to the woman at the well, when he didn't have food to his disciples, my, you, my food is to do the will of the Father. That, that God wanted that woman saved. More important than anything that was, else that was going on. The, the disciples were clueless. And we're, we can be clueless at times. God is so wanting to save people. He wants people to know that this Savior that he's provided wasn't, just, didn't came to be, just to be uh, demonstrated in a nativity scene. He came to die. And he came to die to change people. And he's changed us so we can carry that message out there, being led by the Spirit, to be able to be bold for him and not be ashamed of the gospel and give people the truth. And then they'll get saved and then they can be a part of the same thing. So he wants us to be light. He came as light into that darkness as we looked at. But then he said, you are light. Now you go out and don't hide your light under a, a bushel or whatever it is, covering it up. You know, you go out and be light, and I will use you far beyond anything you could ever dream of. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we want to be an extension of you in this world. We want, Lord, to be an extension of your heart. You're seeking and wanting to save. You're pursuing people. Jesus, you said... 
if you be lifted up, you'll draw all men to yourself. Lord, help us to work with you in how you're doing all of that. Help us to be willing to open our mouths. Lord, we know you want to use our lives as a testimony, but Lord, you call us to preach too. You've said in your word that no one can believe unless they hear a preacher preaching. So help us, Lord, to be bold when you have set those divine appointments up for us to share our faith, Lord. Thank you for that great gift in Jesus. Thank you that he was born. And and thank you, Lord, that he was born to die. But help us, Lord, to not hoard that message and enjoy a great life, but withhold that life-saving truth with others that you place around us to reach. Help us to be faithful, Lord. We know we're not going to be perfect. We know we're going to fail. Thank you for your grace and your patience with us as we continue to grow in that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.